This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Oh, Grow Up edition. It's Wednesday, September 17th, 2014. On today's show, adulthood, what has happened to the old norms and customs of the grown-up? We discuss a thought-provoking essay by the New York Times film critic A.O. Scott, And then we hope you grok to this delightful second segment, but worry about the optics of it. What to make of annoying fingerprint words, the pet language that someone uses to sound distinctive. And finally, the Apple Watch. Is it the third phase of a revolution initiated by the iPod and continued on with the iPhone? Will it transform mobile computing or merely be a novelty item or worse, an annoyance? I can guarantee you we do not know the answer. Joining me today is Slate's <laughs> editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Don't promise too high, Steve. Hi, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Set the bar low, right? And uh, we're joined by our film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Really had to uh, Dan- pause and, and try and remember her name there. Huh? I know I had a little identity crisis in that little pause. <laughs> I had to consult my Dick Tracy watch first to remember uh, who I was seated next to. Podcast taping ten o'clock with Dana Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before we uh, dig in here, Julia, we have some business to attend to. What do we have? We have not one but two red hot live shows coming up for our listeners. The first is in Los Angeles on October 8th. We'll be setting up shop, doing a live performance featuring uh, John August and Craig Mazin of Script Notes. Dana's in my favorite screenwriting podcast. It probably would be Steve's if he'd ever listened to it. And you can get tickets to that at slate.com slash LA Culture Fest. 
We also have a live show coming up Boston, October 20th at the Wilbur Theater, where, as I noted, I once saw Annie DeFranco. And you can get tickets to that at slate.com slash bostonculture. So um, there we go. Two live shows. I'm pretty excited. We're going to be like, it's like the Culture Gabfest world tour. This is the greatest density of live shows we've ever done in a small period. I feel like this is this is where we're going to be like the touring band who's writing bitter songs about our impending breakup in the hotel room. <laughs> you have a much you have a much more dis. This is like our first world tour. I think this is going to be like the fun tour where you know there's like all the groupies and the you know the the wild scene on the bus. Yeah, you're right. We have to have our almost famous fun tour first before we get into the bitter tour. I, I don't ever. I want to have a bitter tour. But okay, fine. Come on, give me a bitter tour. It's my life's dream. <laughs> oh, man. Um, we also have guests in the studio today. We are hosting here in New York, Steve, you may not be able to tell, a bachelorette party. A bride-to-be, Blake McKay, is here with her maid of honor, Jessica Halliburton. And we think they're not spies from Enemy Podcasts. They seem like very nice people who are um, celebrating an impending wedding. So um, we will try to keep it extra verbally today. I just love the nerdiness of a bachelorette party that whose place of choice is to attend a morning taping of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. It's so good that there are such listeners out there. It's kind of great. Also, I love for those of our listeners who don't know that I'm in Ghent, New York, coming in via ISDN. I, they're sitting there puzzling out why I wouldn't be able to recognize a bachelorette party happening in my own studio. <laughs> Steve, you just classic case of bachelorette party blindness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, moving on. Um, in my main line of work as a film critic, so writes A.O. Scott, the, I think, truly great film critic of the New York Times, I have watched over the past 15 years as the studios committed their vast financial and imaginative resources to the cultivation of franchises that advance an essentially juvenile vision of the world. He goes on to say, meanwhile, shows like The Sopranos and Mad Men have heralded the end of male authority along the way to concluding it. It seems that in doing away with patriarchal authority, we have also perhaps unwittingly killed off all the grownups. This essay is getting a ton of buzz on the internet. It's called The Death of Adulthood in American Culture. Dana, I'm going to start with you if it's okay. This is a very busy essay. It's impressive in many respects, but it is chock full of uh, examples and uh, tangents. But nonetheless, at the heart of it is an observation I assume that we've all been making tacitly or otherwise, that life no longer seems as regulated uh, uh, according to the norms of the 50-year-old uh, white male as it was 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, I think what you make of this argument has a lot to do with where you pinpoint its heart exactly, because he does go off on on quite a number of uh, alleyways. Dana, let's just start by asking, what do you make of the argument? What do you think the rub of the argument is? Where does the rubber hit the road here? Yeah, that is a hard place to locate in this essay. I mean, I should begin by saying that I am a huge A.O. Scott fangirl. I really, I'm, he's a sort of friendly colleague. I wouldn't say a friend. But to me, he is certainly the one out there who's covering sort of day-to-day developments in film with the most breadth, the most knowledge, the most speed, the most everything. He's just an incredible writer. That said, I think this essay is a little bit of an attempt to fit a book's worth of ideas into about an unusually long magazine essay, but still about a 5,000-word essay or so. And I think it goes in so many different directions that it is hard to place the nub. His 
reading of television, in particular the death of patriarchy and the big cable shows, Mad Men, The Sopranos, and uh, Breaking Bad are the three that he concentrates on, is, I think, really brilliant. How he gets from there to the death of grown-ups, and especially what he does at the very end of the essay when essentially he sort of throws up his hands and says, thus it must be, and has this kind of joking end of saying, you know, I, I, I affirm the perpetual flux of, of culture and yet get off my lawn, right? I think there's an ambivalence and a little bit of a wussing out at the end of the essay that makes it feel like, go on, you know, write a book. And this may be more of a critique of internet essay writing than it is of this particular essay. I just think it's trying to jam too many big ideas in. Mm-hmm. I like that it's a critique of internet essay writing, given that it was printed in a paper magazine. But <laughs> Well, all right. Writing in the age of the Internet. And many of the responses to to this article have also been extremely thoughtful, but, you know, somewhat constrained by the format of their delivery. Hmm. Julia, what do you make of this essay? Well, I think that it was certainly an interesting, fascinating, fun, lively, challenging read. Like, I'm glad my brain did that set of gymnastics, went through that obstacle course set up by A.O. Scott. That was fun. I actually thought the most interesting thing that he did in the piece was trace the American fascination um, with youthful innocence casting off the shackles of society and proper civilized grown-up life. You know, he traced it all the way back to Huck Finn, to American literature generally, and made a very persuasive case that we've had a long literary tradition of this sort of thing. And yet the piece is called The Death of the Grown-Up, but it it sounded a little bit like he was arguing that the grown-up has sort of always been dead in American culture. And so it was weird that the piece both was framed and had internally a sense of being like a declinist narrative, when in fact it seemed to be arguing more persuasively that this is a just ongoing thread in American culture that has new iterations and, and new faces. Right. He concentrates pretty heavily on this Leslie Fiedler book, The Love and Death in the American Novel, which is kind of the first, I guess I would say sort of the, the first analysis of this exact dynamic that, that A.O. Scott is trying to take apart. And so in that sense, he seems he's sort of arguing against himself, right? I mean, by positing that there's this long genealogy to American literature being the story of a boy who resists civilization, Huck Finn style, and who bonds sort of homosocially with, you know, a usually sort of a noble savage figure, though he doesn't get into that part of it, right? He takes that Leslie Fiedler argument and applies it to the films of Judd Apatow and Adam Sandler. And there's a little bit of a sense that that they're continuing in the same tradition rather than creating some new declinist narrative, which is what the setup to the article implies. So that's what I mean about that mid-essay divergence into a different chain of argument that seems less strong. Right. And then in the second half of the essay, he starts to delve really heavily into gender. And there's such rich territory on the gender front, I think, in terms of the, the many different forms of women that we're able to see represented, particularly on television, he focused on. And it's certainly rich territory for interesting women on television and seem to be saying, you know, okay, the women get to be wild, irresponsible idiots too. And I guess now this is what we're all doing. But it is actually kind of cool that the women get to be wild, irresponsible idiots too. And he's not, he's not complaining really that they are. But, you know, if what we're seeing is that now women and men have this fantasy of, of being youthful people who are struggling with whether to be adult or how to be adult, that seems also slightly to cut against this argument. I mean, one other response to the piece that I thought was fascinating was the one Adam Sternberg wrote for uh, Vulture.com, I think, where he pointed out that, in fact, the subject of Knocked Up is adulthood. Like, Knocked Up is not purely, that's a movie about being a grown-up. And it's actually much closer to being 
what being a grown-up is actually like than like swishing around in a suit with a cigarette, like striding through important meetings with Jaguar, you know, like when you cease to be a child and you take on the responsibility for other people, like that's real adulthood. Yeah, this is a question that's left open in Scott's essay, which is what does it mean now to be a grown-up, right? If if Mad Men is a taking apart of the mid-century, mid-20th century ideal of what it was, and if the modern man-child comedy is, in Scott's terms, a denial and a refusal of adulthood, then what are we left with? What happens to people after they're 30? And the vision that A.O. Scott has essentially is that we are all just wandering around in sneakers, listening to our iPods, trying to be our 17-year-old selves. Well, so let me preface what I'm about to say with, uh, you know, my admiration for A.O. Scott is real. It goes back all the way to celebrating the fact that he got the job at the New York Times, even though he didn't really have a deep background in film. He's a tremendous writer. He he writes with verve and wit. He, he lost me here a little bit. Um, and I'll tell you, I have to say the rise of the critic whose horizon of experience appears to be nothing but pop culture itself seems to me a symptom of the problem rather than a, a diagnosis of the problem. I was just amazed at how hermetic it felt. And he seemed to be aware of it, too. He does confess that he seems to be writing more about images, you know, in the you know, la-la sphere of cable TV and movies. Um, But it did leave you, I think, very hungry for some deeper engagement with the structural changes or historical changes that have brought this about. I mean, it clearly isn't something that just happened on premium cable TV and at the multiplex. It's, it's, there's either some large social change has happened or it doesn't really hold much weight or interest as an argument. So what's that large social change? And when he reaches outside of the argument to history, he grabs too much history and starts quoting Leslie Fiedler's book, which is a great book and a kind of classic. And it's important to say that what Fiedler was claiming was that it's not so much that people were Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer and and, and Ishmael, that the principal thing that they were afraid of and rebelling against wasn't wearing a suit and you know, a periwig and and acting like a serious pseudo aristocratic, you know, person or professional. What they were afraid of was was sex. I mean, in some ways, what they were afraid of was domesticity, uh, the taming of of male sexuality, and thereby coming to grips with an existential fact about life, right? Like like his version of maturity isn't a madman version, it's an existential version where you accept the inherent limitations of life. And something about the American exception and the nature of the frontier allows us to constantly evade that. I think that that's a fascinating argument and a great book, but I don't like the leap from this is happening everywhere on my television set to this has always been happening everywhere in American society because of some, you know, some some of the rootstock of our character. Somewhere in between there, there's a historical explanation, which is more trenchant and more compelling. And I wish we'd heard about that. I mean, it certainly has to do with the 60s, right? And transitions that happened in the 60s. It certainly has to do with the cult, you know, so the youth quake of the 60s, the culture of divorce of the 70s. You know, I, I hope I'm making an argument about the death of adulthood in my book about the 80s. I think if you were to compare the tone of this essay, of A.O. Scott's essay, to let's say Dwight MacDonald's Mass Cult and Mid Cult, which is a, you know, sort of the classic quote unquote think piece of, I believe, the 1950s, Dwight McDonald sounds like an adult in a way that A.O. Scott doesn't. I think the great irony of this essay is it itself is weirdly childish in its utter and total preoccupation with pop culture to the explanation of other ways of grasping reality. Whoa, burn. 
Well, in that regard, I would refer listeners after they've read the A.O. Scott essay to Andrew O'Hare's response to it on Salon, which was really, really impressive, I thought, which was essentially sort of a, a an expansion on what you just said, Steve, and not a takedown of what Scott had said, but an expansion and a clarification and augmentation of it, kind of using the tools of historical materialism, essentially, and talking about for economic forces that have shaped these trends in, in American culture, and particularly the transformation of Americans from being producers of products to consumers of products over the last 50, 60 years, whenever we're marking that kind of decline of industrial production. It's, it's really smart and really depressing what he has to say. Yeah, I mean, look, the mid-century adult, right, this norm that I believe is implicit in A.O. Scott's argument was a result of a specific social contract that had to do with... Uh, the breadwinner, right, the male breadwinner, and was backed by, you know, the the guild of the professions and the unions uh, uh, were still powerful for the working class breadwinning male. And the compensation we get for having lost that is the loss of the patriarchal authority that came with it and the rise of feminism, which A.O. Scott gets into a little bit. But in order to reckon these things seriously, you have to ask, well, can we get back some of what was good about that, some of the probity of it, some of the the economic power of the breadwinner without it being inherently patriarchal? That's a really interesting subject. And instead, we get eight more paragraphs about Billy Madison. You know, I exaggerate a little bit, but I, it's a great essay in that it's frustrating in a provocative way. But it is genuinely frustrating. I mean, you, you, it raises all these questions that go completely unasked, in part because I think as one symptom of the phenomenon that he's talking about, we've lost the habit of talking about large social and economic forces without first having to apologize for being a quote unquote Marxist. That to me is just preposterous. You guys, I'm realizing that the writers and the editors and us have gotten kind of caught up in like a semantic and wiggly critique of A.O. Scott's piece. But suppose we just stipulate that he argued successfully that the adult has gone away. If we take that as a given, are you guys sad? Like, let's actually take the point he made and, and talk about that for just a sec. Do you think the adults have left and are you bummed? If they have left, then I, yes, I would be bummed. I think Steve would say say so as well. I mean, this is why I was I was saying that Andrew O'Hare's response was so kind of profoundly sad is that he had this very dystopian kind of vision of, you know, American culture as a bunch of people trying to earn enough money to suck down the products that were being fed by these juvenilizing corporations. And that is a very grim vision of humanity to go forward with. Steve, don't let Dana speak for you. Then again, I want a bitter Gabfest tour, so don't listen to me. I'm dark today. He's in a weird mood today. (laughs) Steve, where do you come out? I will give the simplest answer I know how. I do regret it totally predictably, hopefully for at least a slightly unpredictable reason, which is I'll come at it from the other angle, which is that I don't think life should be dominated by peer relationships, that there is something about seeing someone who's a third or half a generation older than you in your own personal life and maybe in you know in the media or in public life seeing someone who's a full generation or more older than you and thinking of that as intrinsically admirable and aspirational and moving towards that as opposed to constantly seeing people who are your own age as kind of clothes horses and lifestyle horses that you're supposed to mimic because the one crowds out the other they're categorically different and to not only have a role model which is probably the most superficial way of putting it but to have some sense of life as a serious duration during which 
large changes happen, but which offers intrinsic compensations if you do it kind of right. You can't know that unless you have older people present in your life, and they can't be present in your life and, uh, and meaningfully unless they have a kind of inherent authority. Therefore, you need to feel as though there is something older than you that's a grown-up that's you know important and authoritative, and that to me is what should be lamented. But I guess if we take the whole argument as as you know airtight and as a given, I still find myself rankling at it a bit, perhaps also predictably, because I don't think. What he makes the case for is the end of grown-up responsible role models in your life. It's not true that America is like a wanton mess of people just like playing in grown-up sandboxes everywhere. Like I know hundreds of wonderful grown-up admirable people with interesting minds who are making smart choices about what to do with their lives and time who inspire me every time I talk to them and think about them. So in terms of the world, the world is full of grown-ups. And in terms of the culture, to me, the dismantling of a specific mode of how a man should be and how they should be the leading authoritative figure in the culture, like that's the fact that we now live in a world where more people get to define what is valuable and important to them that is a good thing as well. So I feel like even even without getting lost in the architecture, like the upsides of whatever this change may be, this amorphous change that's hard to grapple with, to me, I think may outweigh whatever the Don Draper decimating downsides are. But see there, I just have to go back to the squirrely literary critic mode of taking apart the essay because I accepted your stipulation that his argument is true, but he's arguing so many things at once. So what he has to say about the death of the patriarchy may not necessarily lead to all of these other conclusions. That's why there's kind of a domino effect with this essay, if you will. If you start to believe one thing, then suddenly you find yourself throwing up your hands and believing a whole series of alarmist things that I don't think necessarily follow. All right, fine. The literary critic wins. Onward. Onward. All right. Well, the essay is The Death of Adulthood in American Culture. It's by A.O. Scott, and it's in the New York Times Magazine. Check it out. All right. Well, moving on. The writer Matthew J.X. Malady began to notice his strange over-reliance on the word iteration instead of using the much more common synonyms version or instance. He then noticed that he'd been, quote, doing this with different words in other contexts. And that got me, he says, thinking about the extent to which we all grow attached to or spread our sometimes begrudgingly jettisoned specific, just barely uncommon fingerprint words nuanced, terrific, dichotomy, whatnot. He goes on to say, friends in academia complained about colleagues overusing discourse and reify, and nearly everyone had an anecdote about some pet word being passed from one person to another in various social settings, or in the case of one slate editor, her fingerprint word, delightful, ascending among Silicon Valley folks. Julia, fess up. It was me. It was my word. You know, what's really funny is the person I live with had already, who's a big GabFest listener, had already pegged delightful as your keyword before this this essay was ever published. You were just associated with delightfulness, perhaps because you are delightful. <laughs> that's, a, that's a kind interpretation. Um, I do say it on the show a fair amount, I think. And I also, so I use that word a lot. And then Kevin Roos wrote a really great essay for New York Mag's website um, in which he pointed out that delighting people is like a super Silicon Valley buzzword and that when you roll out a new product and you're bringing it to venture capitalists, you like talk about how much your new product is going to delight people. And it totally rang true because in addition to using 
delight in this context, I often use delight when I'm describing the purpose of Slate, like when I'm talking about how we want a user interface to work or how we want our readers to feel about the interesting things they find in the magazine. And so I'm just a walking cliche. I thought that it was a it was a charming and particular word to describe the relationship that we want our um, journalism to have with its readers and listeners. And I'm just a hollow shell of myself. So go get us some venture capital, girl. <laughs> I'm working on it, Dana. I'm working on it. Um, but I, uh, yeah, so, but I, I don't know that I'm going to stop saying delightful. You guys say it too, don't you? Or is it really just me? I don't know. I guess I do think of it as a U word. I mean, of course, my first thought when we decided to do this as a topic was, oh, no, now I'm going to have to hear my signature words. And when I think about it, I don't know that I can come up with any for you guys. Do you have signature words for me or for yourselves? Steve? Allegopoly. <laughs> um, That's for you uh, or for I, Dana? That's for you. I, I, I think it's probably for me. I mean, the funny thing about, you know, the lead of this essay by, by Matthew Malady is about the word iteration. I definitely use iteration instead of just version or edition or instance or whatever. Uh, the other ones that came to mind, and also I use delightful a lot. Um, maybe I'm mirroring you. And one interesting thing about the essay is it gets into this notion that, that first of all, they're crutch words for people who don't want to use a more common word as a crutch word, because using a very common word as a crutch word does make you sound a little dull. So it's not only that it's an attempt to individuate yourself, to use a, a fingerprint word of mine, you know, and make yourself kind of self-branded and distinctive. I think it's just trying to keep yourself from frowning, sounding like a dimwit by repeating the same words, like words like instance over and over again. At least if you say iteration, you sound a little bit smart. However... But even iteration, I think, has the same issue as delightful, which, and this was what fascinated me about this essay, is the combination of factors that cause a specific word to pop out of your mouth at any given moment is so manifold. Some of them are personal. Some of them have to do with your social group. Some of them have to do with your profession. And some of them have to do with the culture. Iteration, I think, is totally somewhere deep inside both of us. I say it a lot too, Steve, a descendant of the current tech-based culture that we're working in because technology as you develop it is iterative and you, you oh, like we're going to have people talk all the time about iterative development and here's a new iteration of the website and then we updated a few things and here's another iteration like it's a technical sort of digital age way to say version or instance I actually think you'd be much more of a rare rock star if you started talking about instances of things all the time I was just thinking of the word immersive, mm -hmm. which was, to me, feels like it was debuted. It's such a corporate word. It feels like, I feel like it was debuted with Avatar, with the James Cameron movie Avatar. And all of the publicity was about how immersive this movie was going to be. And at some point, I don't think it was in my review of it, but at some point in some writing about it, movie club or something, I found myself using immersive and it was such a moment of shame. Like, I just used the word they want me to use. They just fed it to me through the pipeline and it worked. They marketed it into your, into your noggin. But anyway, Steve, I cut you off with my iteration point. Oh, no, I just, I, I was going to highlight one part of the essay that I was especially interested in, which is that you know, people have two tendencies when they're talking to someone with a very distinctive way of speaking, whether, you know, it's their accent or their fingerprint words. The first is to mirror them because unconsciously you're starting to kind of admire and be infected by the way they speak. And the other is to repel it and to try to self-individuate in the face of it and use extremely your own distinctive, heavily fingerprinted language um, as a way of um, as a way of not mirroring it and not getting assimilated to it. 
it made me think about why one might be seduced by the way someone else speaks. And, you know, I remember when I was first getting into journalism a couple decades ago, I, I just remember thinking, it was back in the heyday of a magazine called Lingua Franca, which was kind of, you know, triple A proving ground for a lot of journalists who went on to do great, truly great work and who've become, some of whom have become, you know, sort of first rank journalists. But it was a halfway house really between academia and the world of journalism because it was about academia. And it, it the premium on sounding as if you'd gone to grad school but hadn't been crushed by its banalities was quite high for a, you know, for a general run print magazine. And I just remember everyone used the word putatively. The word putatively was everywhere, you know, everywhere in there. And I made a promise to myself then, you know, to never use the word putatively and also to just try. I mean, everyone listening to this is going to laugh so hard coming from me, but to try really hard, at least in my writing, I promise you not to use words that automatically, that that have a kind of lazy, smart quotient to them. And, um, you know, what, what makes someone's, way of speaking or writing seductive has nothing to do with these words. It's the opposite of these words. It's it's somehow playing with language in order to make someone see, you know, reality in a kind of new way. It it doesn't have to do with crutching on these on these pseudo smart cliches. I hear you on that front and I think leaning too heavily on something highfalutin it doesn't speak well of you. But what I loved about it was the notion that we just all have these personal vocabularies, these personal lexicons that we carry with us and that they shift over time and they shift in response to all these different things. And some of them probably do have to do with status and signifying that you could have been a professor even though you're not and what, you know, whatever else you might want to signify. But to me, it's just fun. It's fun to kind of fall in love with a word for a little bit and use it a bunch. I've been using the verb to ding, meaning to like knock out of contention, like uh, Gong show style. Yeah, like I, I've, oh yeah, I had to ding that one or whatever. And my husband's been totally perplexed by it. Like he doesn't know what it means. And and as a result, I've noticed that I've said it like five times in the last three weeks. I don't know why I've been talking about dinging things, but I have. And I'm sure it'll fall out of my mouth. Like I don't know in another week or two, and I'll stop talking about dinging things and um, start using something else. But I don't think I'm trying to prove anything there to him or myself. It just kind of cycled through. It's like you, there's a sweater that you wear for a few uh, months and then you stop wearing the sweater. I'm, no, I'm calling, I'm calling bullshit. What am I trying to, what, 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 what does my use of ding here. stay about the state of my marriage, Steve? <laughs> I'm indifferent to that way of putting it, Julia, but people, you included, use these words because People want to be early adopters of words that are being used in an unusual or interesting way or that have fallen out of favor and can now be brought back as a way of making themselves sound distinctive. Now, that's different from putatively, right, which is just kind of using a pseudo smart word in order to sound you know, smart. But what you're talking about is this kind of clever use or slight misuse or, you know, revivification of a, of a half forgotten word in order to sound clever. And the problem is when everyone else comes in and starts using it as well, you're no longer the early adopter. And if you use it again now, people are going to say, oh, you're a late adopter of the word and you have to abandon it. That's that's the life cycle of words like... Bullshit. Can, I, can I just optics. jump in here? I've got to adjudicate because this is like the silliest argument ever. <laughs> I mean, I know from years of examples that Steve, as much as Julia, is is 
likely to pick up some viral use of a new word, play with it for a while, toss it aside to pathologize that and make it into not all language use is a status contest, especially between husband and wife. I hope <laughs> that you you and your man just, just don't spend the day throwing down cleverness gauntlets at each other. I mean, I just want to affirm that, yes, we don't we are not completely in control of our language. As Julia said, when you choose a word, there's a thousand different currents that go into why you choose it. And some part of it, especially if you're a language person by nature, just has to do with novelty and playfulness and wanting to try something new. I also think there are words cults to be part of than the cult of I am a person who thinks it's amusing to excavate an interesting word of yesteryear and I'm lucky enough to be married to live with work with and be friends with other people who are also interested in language and so if I can find some you know fun little bibolo to steal one from you, Steve, and toss it around for people, like, why not? It's fun. You know, to the degree that there is a social component of it, it's less like, watch me puff up my crest like the big bird for a status reason and more like more like mutual grooming. Like, here we are. This is our culture, <laughs> you know? Flea words, picking yeah. them off each other. Yeah. Oh, you have a nice one. Oh, you have a nice one. Like, it, it's, uh, to me, it's it's just fun. I, I recognize that I probably just can't see what a craven status hound <laughs> I really am. But I, I just think when I'm, you know, John Swansburg called me out for tossing around the word folderall sometimes, which I do. <laughs> and you said claptrap. <laughs> oh, claptrap's even better. See, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ditch folderall and get on the claptrap train. I actually, I'm going to send out, I was just talking about this the other day with someone, all the great, if there is a linguistic category for the nonsense words in English that means sort of claptrap and folderall and hoo-ha or whatever, sort of nonsensical <laughs> material that you are dismissing, everybody send in your favorite ones because it feels like there's countless ones. I'll try and ding all that claptrap and folderall. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Hoo-ha. Um, who's he, what's You've it? descended into Jabberwocky. Let's, <laughs> let's focus here. Um, um, Steve, stand down, right? Can you acknowledge that some use of language is like fun social group play and not um, all some horrible uh, alphabetic ladder we're climbing? Uh, yes, but you can spin it either way you want, whatever gets you through the night. But I'm, I'm, all I'm saying is that the word loses its playfulness with with common currency that it's that its playfulness is a function of its you know uh of uniqueness and surprise and novelty and and once people i mean the perfect example was i would love to go back and trace the first use uh of optics like the optics of the situation who started using that um and it was i think in political punditry that it uh recently reoriginated or you know found itself you know getting used in this new way like how a situation looks from the point of view of its media representation and the public and on and on what are the optics of the situation like and that was the first time i heard it i think it was from julia and i was like i was like wow look at her puff up her crest and her plumage <laughs> is so is so beautiful and 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 then the thousandth time i heard it you know when it fell stillborn from the mouth of george will on a morning <laughs> tv show I realized that its life cycle was complete. Now, you can say that this has a, a, a Thorsten Veblen-esque you know, aspect to it, that it had scarcity value when Julia Turner first used it, and its scarcity value was used up by the time it arrived at you know, George Will's you know, dusty palette. But, um, you know, or not either way, but it just it no longer became a clever thing to say. It marked you as something other than a clever person at the forefront. You know, it's like joke telling. You know, people say jokes. Jokes originate in prisons, and 
They do? Uh, Yeah. And then they kind of life cycle their way through the culture until they arrive at, you know, the water cooler at Slate, I guess. And um, and then they're dead and then they can be retired. But it, I, I'm not pointing to the I'm not pointing to some, you know, will to power underbelly there. I, I just I, but I do think that they have a life cycle. Well, it's interesting, though, the word you highlight there, because I'm sure whenever I said optics, I, to me, there's a difference between words like optics and words like falderal or using ding for like a couple. I mean, ding isn't even clever. It's just it's just specific. And optics is or, or mes- what was your word? Not mesmerizing. Immersive. Immersive. Optics and immersive to me, see, it's like synergy. They're like they become buzzwords for the entire culture and they become cliches. And sure, you could be on the bleeding edge of that cliche and then it goes everywhere and you feel bad about it. But the personal fingerprint words to me feel distinct. They don't have as broad a social currency. They have a particularity that's very embedded in your social group. And that, to me, is what caused my chagrin, probably another fingerprint word. I totally say chagrin all the time. Chagrin is such a good word. I'm now realizing. But what caused my chagrin about delightful, because I thought delightful was like a particular word that I was using in my particular little nest in the world to describe a set of things. And to find that it's just like this that it's another optics, that it's just some stupid buzzword, does make me feel sad, like my particularity has been erased and I've been unindividuated. Now, as, they can't have delight. I will not give the Silicon Valley tech bros delight. I reserve it for Julia. Their use is, <laughs> is inauthentic and yours is authentic. Um, that's kind. I'm not sure that works that way, but that's kind. <laughs> I shall decree it so. Um, all right. Well, we've highlighted a few of our fingerprint words and or the ways in which are, we are beholden to... Um, status anxiety. But our listeners should probably suggest more, right? They probably know better than we do, our weird tics. Oh, God, they have such a keen x-ray. I really don't want to see it. But I'm curious. Go ahead. Tell us. What are our fingerprint words? Yeah. Facebook.com slash culture fest. Steve, I totally just ended the segment for you. I'm sorry. Take it away. It's okay. The optics of it aren't great, but <laughs> I can live with it. But it was delightful. All right. Well, let's cut this baby in half. <laughs> All right. Moving on. All right. Well, this past Tuesday was the Apple Fall gadget launch. And uh, while people were expecting the iPhone 6 and the iPhone 6 Plus, which will compete with larger screen smartphones, Apple also announced the upcoming launch of the Apple Watch. Juliet, what I find so amazing about this is that ever since the heyday of Dick Tracy comics, the idea of a watch upon which you can make a phone call or see the image of someone else remotely, the super high-tech watch has been kind of a symbol of the great future of technology. It's been lost along the way, uh, and now it looks as though it's being revived. They're not out yet, so of course we don't have one to play with, but the idea of the Apple Watch is fascinating in and of itself. The question is, will consumers grok to something that stops working in the course of the day if it doesn't have a long enough charge? What about the form factor of it? Many people consider it uh, upon initial inspection to be somewhat ugly. There's too much crammed into one space. And precisely what applications will it have? I mean, the emphasis seems to be at first, at least on health and fitness. But then the question arises, will these be kept private or will these facts about how much you walk and your heart rate and on and on get thrown up into the cloud uh, available for snatching. Um, Julia, what do you make of this product? Well, it's hard to know until we have it. But I think the thing that's interesting here is the notion of our wearable future. Like I think we've been hearing since Dick Tracy about the notion that we're going to have technology all embedded in our smart jackets and this, that, or the other. And it seems like it's here. Like, I feel like when Apple makes a consumer product, 
you know, and it's, it remains to be seen whether this is still true in the post-Steve Jobs era. But when Apple decides it's time to bring a consumer product to market, that consumer product seems to suddenly become huge, right? Like this happened with tablets. This happened with um, the iPod, with the iPhone. Like they seem to invent whole new classes of technology that people covet, want, and have. So I feel like I've been hearing about smartwatches for a long time. There's one already out from Samsung. Nobody I know has one. Nobody know uses them. Um, and now that Apple has made a beautiful video with like lissom runners just flexing their calves as they their watches glint in the sun, I'm like, oh, that looks so pretty. I kind of want one. They the straps come in so many colors. Like they've turned it into a covetable thing instead of a ridiculous hypothetical thing. So now that it's going to be real, I feel like our wearable future is actually here. And then we have to think about what that means and whether we're excited for our wearable future or whether we fear and loathe it. Dana has a very furrowed brow and is wearing three analog watches on her <laughs> wrist. So I feel like I have a sense of where she's going to come down, but maybe the lady should speak for herself. Uh, yes, I wore all my extant analog watches that I currently wear. So we can maybe talk later about wearing a watch and what it means and whether we do and so forth. But just to respond, Julia, to your contention that when Apple decides we need a new genre of product, they create it and it works. I would say that although it's still in beta, Google Glass is kind of an exception to that. The last wearable product that they debuted to great hoo-ha. And it doesn't seem like, granted it's not available in the common market, but it doesn't seem like that has caught on as a fantasy. The way, main way that I hear about Google Glass is people making fun of what assholes you look like when you have it on. And the only place I've ever seen anyone wearing one was in San Francisco, where the guy was probably a developer or something. Right. This is why you trust it when Apple does it. When Google does it, it's like some wonky technical thing that if you're a real insider technology-wise, you're interested in and maybe you sign up and you try and try it. Uh, and you're impressed by its potential computing power and all of the possible iterations of it that may yet come. But when Apple does it, they're like, this is ready for you to buy. You're going to see the video. You're going to want it in a box under your Christmas tree or wherever. Um, and I had that experience watching the video. I was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, I don't really want one. I don't think I need one. I don't wear a watch. I wear a hideous Fitbit, which I guess is my wearable um, as a like step tracking device to try and remind myself to walk out for lunch and take enough steps during the day. Um, and I guess if I had something that looked like a halfway attractive watch instead of an odious piece of rubber, I would be happier. But I think what they are masterful at is understanding consumer desire and creating something that is consumable. And it feels like they've mm -hmm. done that here. Who knows how it will come out? And we had this great piece from Felix Salmon and Slate pointing out that it's going to be really fucking annoying when everybody's watch glows. Like, remember when they invented Indiglow in the early 90s and you could press the little button and the light? Oh, Dana just Indiglowed me here. <laughs> I in Indiglowed my Timex. But, you know, you can see the watch face <laughs> when it's not Indiglowed and then you can see it in the movie theater when you Indiglow it. Um, but if you're going to with these Apple watches, presumably, you can't see anything when they're off. And when they're on, they're like glaring up a big shine of screen glow at you, which is going to be super irritating anytime you're anywhere mm -hmm. dim. Yeah, I think I think this is a bunch of interesting interrelated questions. You know, so a Felix Salmon argument is I don't disagree with. I, I will probably be annoyed to the same degree that he anticipates he will be. Nonetheless, it raises with, with it the ancillary question of, yeah, they're going to be ubiquitous, but if they master near-field communication, i.e. if there is a pay system associated with the watch, and when you're at the checkout, 
counter. You can you don't even have to produce your phone. You can just sort of wave your hand or barely do anything and pay. I think the ubiquity is going to be attractive and more attractive than it is annoying. I think the really interesting question is, think about the trajectory that cell phones have undergone, Dana, specifically in relation to the asshole factor. So, you know, it used to be that you'd pull this phone out in the 1980s that was about the size of a shoebox and you'd press it up against your ear after after untelescoping this long antenna and you were meant to be noticed. It was very unusual that anyone had one of these things. They, they only sat phones now look like what cell phones used to look like. And you were basically a dick if you had one. You were some banker dick and people thought you were a joke. And they slowly went universal because of their functionality. So the early adopters paid some preposterous sum of money for them in order to look like what they thought was a cool person, even though they were wrong. And then over time, as people understood that the functionality was so high, they became universal and therefore almost kind of like a prerequisite for participating in modern life. Can the Apple Watch really go through that? same trajectory it doesn't seem like it it seems it's it seems to me as though it's always going to be stuck a little bit in the first part of that again unless they're just so convenient for purposes of paying and you know i don't know whatever other kinds of uh, uh, functions go with that but it just seems to me it's going to always be the functionality is going to be low relative to its fashion statement because it's wearable and because it's very small. I mean, how much can you really cram into the space of that screen? And then the second thing is, you know, well, why does no one wear a watch anymore? It's in part because of Apple. I mean, they've made the watch totally obsolete with their own smartphones. And so then the other question is simply generational. Can you get kids to reacquire the habit of wearing the very watches that you've made obsolete with all the other technology that they adopt and you sold to them. I don't know that that's a slam dunk. I, I, you know, it'll be really interesting to see whether the wristwatch comes back. To me, the thing that will make it always less significant than the iPhone is the fact that it's supplemental and you still need something big enough to write an email on or watch a movie on or whatever. Always need is a funny thing to say about a fairly recent invention. But it feels like given the way we use that technology now, you want it to be a tiny little computer in your pocket where you can basically do some version of whatever you would do on a normal computer, maybe compromised by size or speed or whatever. And that the, you know, the tablet, the iPad is a less successful product, even though it's still been very successful because it's fundamentally a supplementary device. It's not this portable computing thing. But as voice recognition technology gets better and people start talking to their phones more and we all become more like Dick Tracy, which I think is inevitable. I think you might be able to do end up doing a lot on your watch. And if the watch became the replacement for the phone, that does seem, and it could look stylish, that seems like it could catch on because you know, keeping your phone is going to fall off. Are you going to break it? Which pocket did you put it in? Is this in your pocket or your purse? It is in your purse or your coat. I mean, maybe it's different for men and it's just always in your back left pocket and you just know that. But the like, the where is my phone, the underlying drone through the song of my day of where's my phone? Where's my phone now? Where's my phone? Like that could just go away, which would be kind of interesting. Which would also be in a strange way, your phone becoming part of your body, right? I mean, this is also technology invading the body or maybe invading is too negative a word, but kind of joining forces with in a way that it hasn't before. So that is an interesting way to think of it. It's quite funny, actually, that we all fumble for our phones now to look at what time it is. I don't because I'm wearing three watches. But everybody Do you wear a watch every day? 
I try to. If I have one that's at the ready and the band isn't broken, I go through watches pretty fast. But but I generally do wear one, yeah. In part because I think reaching for your phone seems like a, a strange, in a strange way, sort of retro, right? It's bringing back the, the pocket watch. It's like you're taking out, taking out a fat, ticking gold pocket watch that you have to fumble for in your pocket. The whole reason the wristwatch evolved in the first place, which, as Troy Patterson pointed out in a lovely little piece about wristwatch etiquette on Slate, was during World War One. the pocket watch sort of evolved into the wristwatch because the pace of life was picking up and people needed to know what time it was without stopping to reach into their vest pocket. But now we're all reaching again. And I don't know if anybody else but me has ever reached for their phone to quickly check something, dropped it and broken the glass. There's a moment that a wearable would have been a great shortcut. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I would go for one of these specific watches because I tend to be... Um, like late early adopter, early middle adopter. That's where I would put myself in the adopter adapter quotient. Like it seems like the first thing of anything is never the thing you should actually get because it takes them a little while to figure out all the kinks. But I can certainly imagine myself having one, a device like this made by somebody at some point. But I, and I love watches and have thought about getting another real watch and used to wear a watch, but I haven't worn a watch for about five years and I don't miss it that much. I'm fumbling for my phone anyway, so I might as well check the time. I do keep clocks around. Like I do, when I'm in a at home, I don't like to have to look at my phone to see the time. Like I have a little desk clock on my desk and I have a clock in the living room and a clock in the kitchen. Like I believe in clocks, I think, but for portability, I don't mind it being on my phone. Steve, do you still wear a watch? Did you ever wear a watch? I, I did used to wear one. I don't wear one anymore. It, the launch of the Apple Watch reminded me that I love watches and would kind of like to wear one for all the reasons you know Dana just articulated. But I will say one of the things I love about watches is they're they're an excuse. Not that a man needs an excuse anymore to wear jewelry, but they're a pretty good excuse for you know a guy guy like me to wear. Um, uh, that was a joke. Jewelry. Has um, the snort. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't. I didn't catch the snort. Uh, it was snort worthy though. But. Um, no, but uh, it's an excuse to wear something, you know, it's uh, under the cover of utility to wear something that's actually quite uh, delicate and distinctive and unusual. But, but I don't know how a smartwatch can be those specific things. I mean, I love the sheer variety of them because there are so many vintage, great vintage watches still in circulation uh, that seems vastly more interesting to me than buying a, you know, I, I don't know, name a fancy watch, a Rolex or a, Patek. you know, I don't know, Paytac or whatever. Breitling. Yeah. I mean, I just think that the choice of a watch is a lovely, understated and expressive thing. And therefore, what I love about watches can't really be reproduced by the smartwatch. There's also just the beauty of the clock, the machine, the analog clock, the round clock with 12 numbers on it. You just can't beat it. That machine, since it has been invented, has been keeping time and telling us the information we need to know. I mean, it's really hard to advance on it with anything digital, which the Apple Watch even sort of acknowledges by having this customizable face where you can make it look like various analog clock shapes. Hmm. It's interesting to think of the Christian Markley movie, The Clock, redone entirely in Apple Watches. Just every single time is somebody's wrist with a stupid Apple Watch, and it's like the blue band and the leather band and the analog face and the red face, but it's just all one watch. It's all our future of just staring at our wrists instead of at little rectangles in our Becoming hands. sad, childish consumers of the products crammed down our throats. However, that would get me to buy an Apple smartwatch if it were always playing the Markley. <laughs> and then when you Oh, my it, God, Steve. This is a million-dollar idea. 
it would give you, you know, your normal, uh, your usual, you know, functional interface. But then when you stopped using it, it went back to this kind of, yeah, when it, it went back to the Markley clock. Oh my God. So it's like art as screensaver on your smartwatch for a transcendent art wrist experience. I That's like what it. I'm talking. All right. Yeah. All right. I think we've solved it. I think this is this is uh, what Apple needs to do next. All right. We've achieved uh, something. Uh, harmonic <laughs> convergence here. Uh, now is the moment in our program where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Yes. My endorsement today actually flows more smoothly from our conversation than I could possibly have foreseen. So I've decided for the next few weeks, let's say the next month, to give very minimalist endorsements because I don't know about you guys, but I feel very overwhelmed at this moment with school starting and fall starting and the big movies starting at the amount of information I'm supposed to consume and keep up with and wittily comment on. So I'm going to go very minimalist and try to give people endorsements that actually take something out of your life rather than put more stuff in. And this one is inspired by an experience I had yesterday having to do precisely with phones, which is that I left my phone at home, forgot it on a day when I really could have used it. I had a lot going on. I was running from screening to screening, trying to communicate with various people. And I realized early in the day that it was just back at my house and I wasn't going to have it. And uh, and that's going to be my endorsement. I endorse that everybody lose their phone for one day, maybe plan it ahead on a day when you know, you're not going to be panicking about it. But it changed my day for the better overall, I would say. It, I ended up having a sandwich on a park bench and listening to the conversations around me and reading a book on the train instead of listening to podcasts. Not that there's anything wrong with listening to podcasts, <laughs> but it, it kind of just changed my mind frame for the day. I was very analog for about eight hours that I normally would have been at least semi-digitized. And of course, I also had a running discourse in my head the whole time. Gee, what's going on? What am I missing? You know, as I'm walking down this quiet street, is some major development in cinema happening that I'm supposed to run home and write about? But when I got home at four o'clock or so, only one email was of any urgency whatsoever. I answered it right away. It was fine. And other than that, you know, I hadn't really missed that much. So I'm not trying to go all Luddite and say, throw your phones in the ocean or something, but try a day without one. You might have a very good day. I love it. Um, addition by subtraction. Julia, what do you have? Mine, I will also keep brief because I think you're right, Dana, about the spirit of the moment. It feels like that plunge. You're like back in the game. Summer's over. It's the beginning of the school year always feels like the real new year to me. And so it's sort of like an off we go moment. And here's a song that is mellow and has the strains of summer in it and will keep you calm and collected as you hustle to get all your shit done. And the song is Dry County by the B-52s. It's just a lovely track, kind of forgotten because it was on the album that had Love Shack and Rome, both also two great songs. But Dry County is like, just a way better song in a way it, it, it'll it'll just mellow you along in a happy way oh that is such an excellent endorsement and i love the b-52s and i love them in that iteration oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as well that later that was sort of a bit of a comeback for them yeah all right will you forgive me for following up your modern rock moment with a modern rock moment of my own hit it so as we all know, I'm a big fan of Echo and the Bunnymen, one of my favorite bands, one of the most underrated rock bands of all time. Uh, their frontman, I only discovered this today, um, but their frontman, Ian McCulloch, uh, made a solo album. Because uh, their, their initial iteration as Echo and the Bunnymen was rather short. They acrimoniously broke up, I believe, in the late 80s or very early 90s. And then in the early 90s, he made a record a solo album called Candleland, which I'm embarrassed to say I'd never heard before, and I put it on Spotify. It's terrific. I mean, it's not just a good album. It's a, it's a really, it's a, I mean, I don't know if it's a great album, but it's a, it is a really delightful record. It is, <laughs> it's 
really, really good. You will grok to it so quickly. You're don't using worry grok in such a weird way today. Steve. I don't even because I don't know what the fuck. So are it you means. making fun of it for me? You're using it to mean like flock to, like you're doing like a weird rhyme thing. Where no, you I say, think it means you like. No, it's your ability to understand something. But yeah? you, there's no to. Like you're putting in a weird. It's an intransitive verb. It, you grok. No, it's transitive. You grok things, but you don't grok to them. You grok something, and in grokking it, you like immediately comprehend it fully and deeply. And it's a Heinlein word. Isn't that where it comes from, Robert A. Heinlein? I still don't know what a fucking hashtag is, so this is hopeless. But <laughs> anyway, anyway, you can talk about the thing being grokked, but not being grokked, too. Okay, fingerprint words aside uh, and passive-aggressive jabs aside. That was just uh, aggressive. There's nothing passive <laughs> about that. I just told you you were wrong. <laughs> Candleland's a really good record. I know you don't want the people to know that, (laughs) but it's out. The cat is out of the bag. Um, Anyway, check it out. Tell me what you think, Dana. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Julia, thank you. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. <laughs>